Welcome. You're listening to Sanseet. Where you'll find everything to do with spirituality, life lessons, holistic living, and medicine. To become your true self. We all have stories, journeys, experiences, and love. Here's your host, Erin O'Dowd. Hello and welcome on today's show we have Nick Littlehales. He is the sports sleep coach and has been working in the sporting world for the last 15 years. He has helped athletes and teams to enhance their sleeping. The team that he's worked with is Man United, Chelsea, Arsenal, Team Sky from the Tour de France. Nick has a website called sportssleepingcoach.com where he helps individuals and teams to enhance their sleep. Hello and welcome to the show, Nick. How are you doing today? Uh, it's great to be on your show, Aaron. And feeling uh, not too bad. Still got the remnants of a bit of cold, but uh, like most people, we'll get through it. Oh, yeah. Um, tell us about how you got into sports sleep coaching. It was simply after you know being sort of very interested in, in sports as a teenager and then finding myself with a young family and then finding myself inside the sleeping industry with a um, fairly well-known company from the past, uh, Slumberland Beds. I started working with them and became their international sales and marketing director and during that time did a hell of a lot of research and clinical studies into the subject of sleep and also designing products and watching all the sometimes crazy habits of people sleeping all over the world. And there came a point where I think I was a little bit disillusioned with the fact that it was quite clear how important sleep was to us as human beings, but it was very much taken for granted in a sort of do it anywhere, anytime, on anything kind of way. Um, certainly not a performance criteria, and certainly not something that we, we would invest even a small amount of money in to, to help that process. So literally just one day, my UK office was based in Oldham in Manchester, and the local sports club is called Manchester United and for no other reason I simply wrote to that club asking them that surely in the world of sport they must be taking sleep seriously and doing things about it. I got a letter back from the then Alex Ferguson, the manager, saying that he'd asked his staff and the answer was they do nothing but they were fascinated to, for the reasons why I would have contacted them on that matter. And from that, the head physio at the time, a chap called Dave Fever, who's still in the industry now with Blackburn Rovers, we got talking. That developed into doing a, a little consultation with one of their key players, a centre-back called Gary Pallister, who had a lot of lower back injuries. And I was simply asked, you know, what, what could we do in that particular area? And I went and examined his products at home, what he was sleeping on them with and that resulted in changing those products to something that was correctly profiled for him, his physical and personal profile. And that started to reduce the impact of these lower back issues, not to resolve it, because that's a very difficult and very complicated process, but we certainly reduced the symptoms down and enabled him to do a lot more training and playing. And in those discussions, we developed also passing on my knowledge to the staff I was asked to, to pass that on to the players 
and I was still working for my company at the time, but I was in a, a process of leaving the company on a 12-month contract to go and do something else. I was actually driving into Manchester United's training ground. The guys on the gates and the paparazzi trying to catch the famous players with pictures just simply asked the question, who's this new person driving in and out of the training ground? And they tipped them off as being somebody who's come in to teach the players how to sleep. They found that quite funny, tucking pampered premiership footballers into bed and reading the bedtime stories is what they thought. So they just put the two things together, which was literally Manchester United's got a sleep coach. And literally, it was given to me by the media. And since that point, I've just been engaged in that process. I've been doing it full time on elite sports since around 1998, so some 16 years now. And as each year has progressed, the subject matter of sleep and recovery has just uh, grown in its interest and its counterproductive side effects in sport as well as the whole population. And over the last few years, it's now become quite a serious matter because of how the world has, has certainly developed uh, lifestyles, technology around us, and what we're on a 24-7 focus is that we might have been getting away with poor sleep hygiene, poor sleep routines a couple of decades ago. But now, with everything that we're doing around us in, in today's world, we're not getting away with it. So you, you see a lot of symptoms, disorders, uh, bad habits, and the counterproductive side effects of it. So uh, in the world today, you know, a sports sleep coach is very much on the demand. Wow. But principally, it's uh, <laughs> I see. And how you get an athlete to understand their sleep process? In the first instance, you, you need to, with anybody, is just almost take the word sleep and, and put that clearly to one side, because it's a, it's a term we use for something that we take for granted. It's not a performance criteria, as I said. However badly you sleep or sleep at all, you will still try to complete all the tasks that you'd set out for that day, including your occupation and your sport. You have to sleep in all sorts of different places and on different types of products. So in that respect, it's something that you want to put to one side. And what we do in the first instance is look at mental and physical recovery periods. A few centuries ago, we would actually as a population use three natural sleeping periods in any 24. And so we'd sleep in shorter cycles, shorter periods, not try to do it all at night. There is still that in, in certain countries, the particular ones being Spain, where that siesta period between one and three, which is a, the second natural sleep period, is still actively used. So first of all, think about mental and physical recovery periods. Don't concentrate on the word sleep. You need to redefine your approach to it like that, maybe looking at shorter cycles on a more regular basis rather than one big chunk. And we use a technique called R90, which is recovery in 90 minutes. Uh, 90 minutes is a, a clinical period of time where the human being will go through the various different stages of sleep and it takes normally around 90 minutes for the human being to experience those different stages from light sleep right down to REM and non-REM deeper sleep stages. So we use that 90 minutes and so instead of thinking about hours, because that's if you ask most people how many hours do they try and achieve every night, they'll pick the number eight because they're familiar with that number. Do they actually get eight? I meet 
nobody who does that on a regular basis. We don't plan to achieve it. We don't have a constant wait time and a constant sleep time. Uh, and we've got all sorts of different uh, occupations and demands around us now. And particularly in sport, events are played at all different times of the day, including quite late into the night. So where we first do is we complete a sleep profile with the athlete and that provides me with all the information from nutrition to their occupation, to their daily activities, to their families if they have them, to their physical profiles, what they're sleeping on and with, what the environments they use, how much travel. It is a complete profile of that individual athlete and from that I will be able to assess and create where they are as far as their sleep approach is concerned and from that point we will use the R90 technique which I developed which is simply there are seven key sleep recovery indicators within each of those seven factors we identify whether they are approaching each of those seven areas uh, correctly or if at all and then we will put in place uh, simple steps practical and achievable steps that can be replicated wherever they are whatever they're doing at any time to add those two things together to aggregate up to a much better overall performance. So it's pretty much an engagement process of trying to say, you know, we're not actually talking about sleep as you would know it. Uh, we're actually talking about what's actually why you're doing it, because it's mental and physical recovery, and how you can apply that in today's modern world. So it takes worry away, increases confidence in sleeping, you know, in a lot of cases, it stops people wasting valuable time doing it without too much benefit. And what are the seven processes of sleeping? The key indicators are, and you can check this on yourself, Aaron, if you like, as we go through. The first one is, is your understanding of the circadian rhythms of the day. Some people have a little bit of understanding about what that might be. Many don't. But it's the sun-up, sun-down process the light, dark and temperature shifts that are driven by the sun coming up and the sun going down every day that interacts with us as human beings and triggers millions of cells in our bodies to do certain things at certain times. And if you're not aware of that process and you're not considering it at least, you know, to a minimal degree within what you're doing every day, then that can have an enormous effect on how well you can actually enter a sleep state and stay in it. So by understanding that process, you really do get a better understanding. You can't do anything when you're asleep. You can't affect the quality of your sleep while you are asleep. What you do is from the point of wake to the point of getting round to trying to go into another sleep state, that will determine how well you sleep. The second one is another one that people sort of will know about but are a bit vague on it and that's your chronotype. A chronotype is a genetic twist which determines whether you are a morning person or a nighttime person. In old terms, uh, you know, in the bird terms, a lark, up in the morning and ready to go, or an owl, enjoy the evenings and nights better, that's when you're at your best. And many people lose sight of that chronotype it gets camouflaged by occupations, uh, lifestyles and all sorts of things, or if you end up being a night shift worker, for instance, it gets camouflaged, so you lose sight of it very, very quickly. But again, that genetic chronotype, in line with the circadian rhythms of the day, 
a better knowledge about those two areas can significantly change exactly what you do, when you do it, and why you do it. The next one is thinking about cycles, not hours. So instead of thinking I've got to get eight hours or this or going to bed early or sleeping in later to catch up, if you look at it in cycles, slightly big subject, but the simple fact is if I use my particular routine is I've got a constant wait time of 6.30 every day. The process of sleeping loves patterns, loves rhythms, loves harmony with the circadian process. So 6.30 is a great wait time for me because I am a morning chronotype, so I'm a lark. I like to get up, you know, first thing and get on with my tasks because that's when I'm at my best. If I work back in five 90-minute cycles, that takes me to 11 o'clock, and that five 90-minute cycles is 7.5 hours. So by looking at in cycles rather than hours, I can then move from a five cycle routine to a four or three or two or even one cycle process in any one period dependent on what's going on in my life. I can also use a 90 minute cycle between one and three, which is the second natural sleep period where most people experience a slump in energy. It's the graveyard slot in the corporate world. It's an area just after lunch where we can naturally take a nap. So in that particular period, I would adopt either a full 90-minute cycle if I have the time, or a shorter 30-minute cycle if not. And the third one is between five and seven. And that again is a slump period where your need and urge to sleep are clashing. And again, a 30-minute shorter little slot there will actually balance me out. So in any 24-hour period, I'll either be using five or four or three, plus another one midday or another one early evening. So during any 24-hour period, I can actually see just how many cycles I'm going to be able to get. And I also keep very focused on what I'm doing every 90 minutes. So from the point of wake, right through to the end of the day, I will always make sure that there's an element of recovery happening every 90 minutes. And I won't necessarily go beyond that point without having some sort of break from that activity. And that simply could be just walking away from your desk and walking around the car park or outside and coming back or doing something. Because that whole process will build well. Uh, the next one's your pre and post sleep routines never been as important so yeah my target time is 11 o'clock on a five cycle routine then when i get around to 9 30 i'm going to start thinking very much about preparing myself to enter a sleep state so i might make sure that i've if i need to communicate with anybody through social media or emails or whatever it might be or catch up on one or two little things. I make sure that I've got those done so I can get away from it in that period. A sort of tech shutdown moment. I will make sure that if I need to hydrate a little bit or I need to take on a little bit of a snack so I'm not hungry while I'm in asleep, I shall also make sure I don't, to ensure that I don't wake up to have to go to the toilet because my bladder's still processing, wants to take me to have a wee. So bowel and bladder is empty. I will move from light to dark 
because that is the trigger for producing the right type of hormone to trigger my brain to say we're going to go into sleep and that's melatonin and so you know i'm ready to get into my room in darkness and curl up and go to sleep and five 90 minute cycles later naturally wake at 6 30. then when i wake i need to hydrate and fuel up i need to get daylight into my body i need to give myself time to come from a sleep state into a wake state so pretty much i avoid trying best i can to be asked to do anything other than practical waking up processes for the first 90 minutes of the day. And, and that can be pretty important now because we're using smart devices for alarms and those smart devices now show notifications from emails to texts to social media. And in a lot of the cases, people start reacting to those messages before they've even gone to have a, a wee or before they've even gone to have a drink or take on any fuel. And that can be a little bit like texting when you're a little bit under the influence of alcohol. It's not a good thing to do. So the post-sleep routine can be really serious. So the, the next one is just having a much better balance between activity and recovery. Overdoing it, just keeping active all the time, constantly using technology to keep working or researching or for entertainment, to over-exercising, to doing all sorts of things that we just push it, push it, push it. And so you really do have to understand that 10 minutes recovery is as good as 10 minutes activity. That balance will mean the activity will be very beneficial and the recovery will be quality recovery. If you do 19 minutes activity and one minute on recovery, you're going to get a, uh, your performance levels are going to go significantly down. So a good balance between activity and recovery throughout every day. And then the last two is quite simply the sleeping environment that you're in, which you have the control over, which is possibly the one in your own home. Now that one, there are some key factors around there as far as temperature, light, noise, whether the products you're sleeping with are correctly profiled to you as an individual and any regular partners. And those sort of factors get lost a lot of times on the way that we apply ourselves to, to bedrooms. We concentrate on style, on function, and we don't pay too much attention on the key factors that are going to help you stay in a sleep state for long periods of time. So it's always wise to sort of, in a mental process, remove everything from your bedroom and then only put back the items which are clearly there to help you with mental and physical recovery or stay in a sleep state. So there'll be always a number of areas there, particularly about mattresses, because people just, including people in sports, that is something, you know, we just wander along to a shop one day and sit on it and somebody tells us it's going to last forever and nice and chiropractically endorsed and nice and firm and everything else and then that's it, we're done. And then we spend most of the night tossing and turning, getting too hot, creating neck and back problems, using pillows that don't suit that product with duvets that are too hot, and we wonder why we don't sleep well. And the, the last one is the sleeping products, which we've just touched on. If you just increase your awareness of how somebody like me designs things like mattresses and pillows and duvets to work in harmony with an individual, then it's not about being expensive it's not about being bespoke but if you understand that process better 
It is a little bit like once you've established the size of your foot, Aaron, so I'm a size nine and a half, tenth, is that whatever footwear I'm looking for, if that store doesn't have the right size for me, then I can't buy the product. Or I could buy something a little bigger and stick an insole into it to try and make it fit. But I couldn't go smaller because my foot wouldn't even go into it. So literally, if I walked into a shoe shop and I'm looking for a particular style of shoes and they haven't got my size and I'm not able to go up and change it a little bit, then I'm going to walk away and go to another shop. What we tend to do when it comes to mattresses in particular, we'll walk in and we can walk out when we should have been buying a size 9, we end up walking out with a size 20 or a size 1 or a size something else. And we then wonder why we've got that wrong. And the amount of people who continually put up with a mattress that just aggravates their body, creating lots of sleeping concerns, and continue to buy thousands and thousands of pillows every day in the, in the population in the UK and Ireland. It's simply just trying to they make the whole process work so those are the key the seven key areas is your circadian rhythms chronotype your thinking cycles rather than hours pre and post sleep routines activity and recovery harmony sleeping environments and sleeping products and if you went through those Aaron, and you just went I, if i've raised my awareness in each one of those areas seven little steps in each one that could be very simple things like maybe just changing a pillow as far as products is concerned. It might be just changing the temperature of your bedroom or taking something out of your bedroom that might be counterproductive, like a TV with standby lights on it. It could be a simple just getting a little bit of a better balance between activity and recovery during the day, just taking a few more little breaks every 90 minutes, principally just trying to have some sort of pre-sleep routine of moving from light to dark and tech shut down. Just maybe trying to give you an extra few minutes in the morning before you start rushing around doing everything to get that post-sleep routine going. And with a little better understanding of your chronotype, you will able to do certain things at certain times and get a hell of a lot more benefit out of it. And with the knowledge of the circadian rhythms, that's just one step sorted. Because once you know about that process and what it's trying to do and how it works, then literally you will know that at certain times during the day, it's best not to be trying to, you know, on your rowing machine in the gym, blasting it away like mad when your blood pressure is going to be at its highest, which is normally around five or six every day. And that's the key process that we work on and try to develop that into somebody's routine. And it plays not only to elite athletes, but everybody. And what's special about your products towards athletes? What does it do to the athlete? The first thing is, that, like with any sort of design brief, you want to know that you start off with the fact that it must be extremely, have high levels of breathability. The materials that you use inside of that mattress needs to be able to create airflow in and around the body to keep that temperature control, because that's important throughout the sleeping period. So you don't have rises and falls in body temperature getting too cold or too hot. The second one is hypoallergenic materials. Whether you suffer or not, there are so many things that can fester inside mattress materials. Um, the obvious ones being dust mites and their fecal particles, which create the allergens that most people will suffer from 
and with allergic rhinitis, asthma and eczema and others, as well as dust, the pollutants in our air, whether you keep a very aired room or clean, there's still a hell of a lot in the air around us. So within that product, totally hypoallergenic. We want it to be completely so that the materials will mold and shape extremely easily around your body shape in a fetal position, a natural fetal position then you should feel that there's something supporting your body weight in that position, but you can't feel it, it's not aggravating you, and it's almost like a weightless sensation. So for a lot of people, a lot softer than they would actually imagine. We also make sure that we only use materials that are, are there to help those processes. So we don't put fancy things in that doesn't mean anything. You know. So if we need a mattress unit to support 182 kilogram weight, with a certain profile shape, and we're going to use 1,000 of these types of springs, then we don't put 3,000 in, and we don't put 500 in. We put the optimum amount to create what we want. And that applies to whether we use foam, or gels, or latex, or whatever it means. But in principle, we stick to foam, and natural latex, and gel-based products, because you're trying to get to the levels the way that water can support our body weights by completely dispersing itself and then balancing us. And we don't want it to aggravate us every night. And the other key factor is we don't try to put everything inside the mattress and seal it all up. We'll use, just like in sport, where you use layers, base layers, to control body temperature. And so it's nice and light, but you feel temperature controlled and the body can breathe. So it's a good sporting way to use layers, is that we use different types of layers to build that mattress up. And that means that as the athlete may change through injury, a little bit of weight gain or loss, or as they just get a little bit older, they can change those layers more inexpensively than changing the whole mattress. So it makes them interact with the product on a more regular basis, rather than just buy it, shove it in the room, and say we've got that for 20 years. It is a product that you're working with to make sure it's right for you. And with the clients that you worked with, have they seen improvements using these devices? I possibly wouldn't be doing what I did if it didn't. Certainly, you know, I work across a much broader spectrum of sports, from rowing to sailing to archery, BMX riders, cyclocrossers, track and road cyclists to football, to cricket, to rugby league, rugby union, to bobsleigh teams and snowboarders. So across that piece, using those KSRIs to gauge where you are, your approach towards sleep, to this recovery process, making little steps that don't cost you, that aren't really asking you to invest in anything, just a little bit of commitment to make those little changes. Then what you've got is you've got somebody who can significantly change the way they feel about this process. And literally, before I came on your, your podcast today, you know, I had a comment through from a, a journalist who'd written a piece for their website. And of course, they took notice of the information being given. And I was just forwarded an email to me saying, I applied the R99 cycles rather than hours to my approach, and it has changed my life. I feel more invigorated. I feel more in more control. I don't worry about sleep anymore. I'm able to, if I don't get so many cycles in the one period, I know I can just pop them in somewhere else. And 
I certainly feel that I'm not wasting valuable time doing this process. So when I do go into it, I get the best out of it and get on with my day and I'm feeling a lot more productive. And I think that's the best way to describe how an elite athlete starts. And ultimately, with that type of approach, normally what happens is they start to achieve more things in their sport. You could never put it down that they, you know, they haven't ever won a gold medal and now they do. But what you can certainly see is that they would put it down to one of the significant interventions in what they're trying to do in sport that's really changed and had a positive effect on them. So they really feel they can achieve more. It would be the number of Olympic Team GB rowing teams that I've been around. You know, as far as recovery is concerned, it's up there with one of the most demanding sports in every single way. So recovery is absolutely key for any rowers at any level. And if you know that you're getting the best from it, you can train better, you recover better, so you can do it more often at the right times. You feel as though you can be more prepared when you come to a particular event, so you know how to achieve a peak performance. And that sort of process will generally turn into the fact that you'll have a marginal gain over any competitors. In those last few seconds of a race or during a longer race, the stamina and endurance to keep going. And I do a lot of work with British cycling, which is another very demanding sport. And that could be the difference between Bradley Wiggins winning a Tour de France, because he's been able to, across that whole three-week period, being able to focus really, really well on his recovery. He's recovered better than everybody else. He's got other things around him, like his young sleep kit, which I would have designed for him and various team members. And, and that might put them on the podium and on the track. It could be the difference between the thickness of a of a tyre that makes you gold or silver. So when you combine all those things, you know, the reason why I'm, I'm very busy at the moment and the reason why we're doing a hell of a lot of work in all sorts of areas is because it, it is a performance criteria when you get it right. But most importantly, the bad habits that everybody's adopting in this modern world are having quite a significant effect. And one of those is overstimulating, using higher levels of caffeine intake through all the various areas that we can get it these days to stimulate you through fatigue and poor sleep and also the use of prescribed sleeping tablets as a solution to helping you sleep when you can't. And that is a cocktail for disaster. So one of the success stories by working with any athletes in this particular area is to protect them from things like that, Aaron. Wow, amazing. And what is the correct way to sleep on the mattress? First of all, you accept that an eight-hour, seven-and-a-half-hour period, five cycles, four cycles, it's a long time. Because it sort of comes and goes, if you're lucky, very quickly, we do have to remind yourself that, you know, this is a working day for most people from nine till five, eight hours, solid, doing nothing on a product. So you can't <laughs> not take it seriously about what you're doing. You're going to move around naturally in sleep because it's a long period of time. So naturally you want to move from a fetal position to a front position to a back position. And you want to do that naturally. You don't want to be forced to do it by the product that's underneath you or temperature changing you making you have to move around or even thoughts in your head just waking you out of those sleep states. So everybody could do this. I'll try and explain it clearly. But literally, I'm right side dominant. 
That means I'm right-handed. It means that the best sleeping side for me would be on my left side. On my left side because it's less sensitive, the joints and muscles. It means I can lie on that side easier than the, the pressures that are on my right side of my body. It also means that if I'm going to go into any deep sleep state, if your brain's going to trigger that process, it needs to be extremely comfortable to putting in you this semi-paralyzed state when you are at your most vulnerable. So to achieve that, one of the security little factors is that my right side can protect me in that fetal position if I became aware or fearsome of something or woken quickly by something, is that I've got my strongest side to protect me. Now that can be quite critical. So my left side is the best side to sleep on in a natural fetal position. If I adopt that on the bedroom floor, a hard surface, then I will observe a big gap between my head and the floor. And to make that gap go away, I can shove some pillows under it. Or I can go onto my front, or I can go onto my back to spread my weight out. So what you should have is when you go onto your mattress stripped with bedding, take the bedding away, climb onto the mattress in the and lie on the opposite side to your dominant side in a natural fetal position. That's just with the knees. Take a nice postural position as if you're looking straight ahead. Just bend the knees slightly and fold your arms gently. And that is your fetal position. Adopt that on the bed. And you either get a partner or a camera out and you can put it to one side and see if you can just establish the gap between your head and your mattress in that position without making any adjustments. If it's any more than about a flat hand's width than that, around five or six centimetres, and it will be a lot more for some, but that's about the minimum, around five or six or a flat hand, then that indicates that your body and your profile is not being released into those materials easily and shaping around your body, whatever the materials are. And what you'll need is a pillow to go underneath your head. And that is the point where you know that the product underneath you is not correctly profiled for you. Because you can't use pillows to make that rise. It means that pressure is going to build up on your shoulders and your hips very quickly. It means when you move, you're going to move to the front position more often and the back position more often because pressure builds on the body. It won't encourage you to go back to that left side fetal position as much as it, as it should do. And the pillow is going to get in the way. When you're on your front, you'll try and push it out of the way because it's not only pushing your neck up, your neck is also twisted at 90 degrees, which is not comfortable, so you'll hop from side to side. When you're on the back with that pillow there, it's going to raise the head up, block the airways in the throat, and as you start to go into that natural sleep state and all those muscles relax, it becomes even more difficult for you to breathe naturally and snorting dry mouth and snoring and even mild sleep apnea can all be the consequences of that. So ideally, on your mattress, on the opposite side to your dominant side, in a fetal position, your head should be in line with your mattress as best it can, one hand width at best. And that means that you're in profile with it. So then you can use a very shallow pillow just as a comforting factor that is just there to provide a little bit of comfort to the head rather than being directly down onto your mattress or other linen, but it is not getting in the way. So ideally, you get the right mattress and it shouldn't require you to use any pillows at all. You would just use one to sleep with that was very, very shallow indeed. 
and for a lot of athletes they won't use them at all to sleep with if we get the layers right so if that happened on your mattress Aaron you did that check today and you did observe quite a gap between your head and the mattress in that way then what you could do if you didn't want to go away and invest in a new mattress as long as what you've got is providing a surface then what you could do is add layers to what you've got to simply create that and that could be a topper could be a comforter or just even a spare duvet you've got used as an under pillow just to take that balance out could be a simple solution you know you do need to invest but it's knowledge that you need to invest in not necessarily going out and spending a lot of money on mattresses and pillows and duvets it's about getting it right and you will benefit from that rather than spending a lot of money on some fancy product that claims it makes you go faster, jump higher, beautiful, the best beds in the world. All of those kind of statements don't mean anything to you if when you lie in that position, in that way, on that mattress, it doesn't do that. It's just going to be a pain in your bum every night, tossing and turning, getting you too hot, creating neck and back problems, and you're never going to get the quality of sleep that you want because you'll always be doing this every single cycle, every single hour, and that's why most people you know, wake up feeling very poor and not rested. It's because they're spending all those hours mucking about. When a person travels from one continent to another, jet lag hits in. Is there any way of conquering that or is it just naturally there? There are certain things that people can apply, but even when we apply them with a group of athletes and they travel through time zones, east, west, west, east, then we do notice the same protocols for the group do not work with all of the group. So in general terms, it's not trying to be vague, but what you do have to do is look at the various techniques. You can follow the food clock. That means keeping to your normal food patterns and timings that you normally have when you're in your own country. So if you're flying at breakfast time, eat breakfast type foods at that breakfast time. When it comes to your lunch time, whatever time zone you're in, you eat lunchtime food at a time that's lunch. It's that process, that's called the food clock process. Some people will not eat and drink through the whole course of the flight. So they literally, as they get to the other zone, they'll literally just kick into that food and time zones straight away. I find that extremely difficult, I have to say. <laughs> um, another one is that when you do arrive in that other time zone, you can use light and dark to reset your clock quickly. So if you do happen to land at lunchtime somewhere and it's during the middle of the day, but it's actually your night, then by exposing yourself to a lot of daylight, you can even get little devices that increase that exposure to daylight into the eyes or through the ear canal to make sure that your brain is being triggered to be in a wake state when it actually wants to shift to sleep state. So you can reset it with light. And some people just ignore it. It depends on how long you're there for. Literally, they will stay on their own time zone, irrespective of what's going on wherever they are, and just ignore it. But I have to say, I've just, I recently did a long haul from the UK to Australia through Dubai. You know, I, I certainly, when I got to the other end, and my timings were pretty good actually, because I was pretty much following the own clock. But I really felt it, you know, in the first 24 hours, 36 hours of being there. So even with all of my knowledge and everything else, you still have to accept that when you're doing a lot of traveling, then 
There are little things that you could take with you with, with light devices. There's one called the Human Charger, which is fantastic because it's just getting daylight straight in through the ear canal into the pineal gland and can give you a real sort of nice boost that can be used during the day or anything else. There's using light, following the food, clock process, ignoring it. You've just got to be conscious that whatever you're doing, that the impact, you can't necessarily control that well. So you do need to make sure that within your plans is that if it doesn't kick in and you it did work, then you've got a little bit of extra time in front of you. If it goes wrong, you will absolutely love that time to get yourself back on track because it can be horrible for some people. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on that an athlete or team should know about to enhance their performance through sleep? I think just in a recent workshop with some rugby league players, but it applies to, to many, is I think in general terms, because you know running through those seven key factors and around that 90-minute cycle process of adopting cycles rather than hours, once you start looking at that, one of the things we see all the time is when an athlete is preparing for a particular event, in some cases that could be every week or twice a week, if it's football or an Olympic Games, it's a specific one. But as they get closer, they find it extremely difficult to sleep the night before or the night after because of the adrenaline levels, anxiety, stress, just excitement, and it makes it very, very difficult to sleep. And a lot of the times they spend it worrying that they can't get to sleep and they should be asleep. So one of the things that everybody in any sport is if you think cycles rather than hours, you think about that process, a lot of my athletes will not even try to sleep the night before a big event or after that event because there are so many factors that are against that process that what you're trying to do is make something happen that doesn't want to happen because there's so many factors inside of you that are just counterproductively changing it. So you can do other relaxation techniques, you can do things that bring a more positive outcome to it, you can use other types of recovery techniques just by relaxing in the dark, maybe listening to types of music, maybe reading certain things, maybe doing certain simple tasks, even watching yourself when you last won something when you're at your best, what's a positive mindset? Maybe certain yoga exercises, meditative exercises. There's lots of things available to us and that could easily be far more beneficial than spending unnecessary hours trying to do something and not achieving it. So mentally and physically, recovery is very poor where you could maximize it that way. So it's not about this eight hours every night in a nocturnal period and putting so much pressure on it. You get the pressure off and that would help them enormously. And, and so that's one of the things I think athletes can really take on board and even amateur athletes and anybody who loves their sport at any level is uh, take the worry away from sleeping and get in control of it a bit and uh, you'll feel the benefits from it massively. Fantastic. And is there any technology that you recommend bar your own R90 products? Technology has provided us with an opportunity to measure sleep through apps, uh, wearables, and various things along that route. In principle, they can be used and provide some information to the user, but they can also be counterproductive in the sense that, you know, if it does tell you that you've had a really bad night's sleep, what are you going to do about it that day? What are you going to change? And the answer would be nothing. If you've had a really good night's sleep, does that affect 
what you do that day, are you any better, quicker or faster? And you certainly don't want to be waking up when there's something extremely important to do that day and to be told that you slept really badly. So a lot of those applications and devices around sleep end up being used, but then they end up being shelved. At the same time, they're using data which is predetermined and they might be using accelerometers, which is all about movement and motion sensors. So it's not really giving you how you've actually slept. It's taking a judgment, it's giving you a nudge, it's giving you a guide or a base mark to work against. So be careful about those. But there are certain things out there that uh, the human charger, if everybody just tapped in the human charger, uh, .com, no doubt, that is a little trendy device that uh, really does work. It helps boost through energy slumps during the day. It helps reset for jet lag, and it's a natural way to create a stimulant by keeping the serotonin levels high in your body than melatonin levels, which is that wake happy hormone. So it's a much better natural way than pumping coffee into side you and things like that. That's the humancharger.com. We're encouraged to have blackouts in our bedrooms, which is good because that's the darkness, and that's encouraging the levels of melatonin, which triggers the brain to enter the sleep state. So it's good to get blackout and be in blackout when you're trying to go to sleep. The problem is, is that waking in blackout is more difficult. So when you have blackouts, this sunrise sunset process is you've done the sunset process by having a blackout room, but now you need to create the sunrise process because there's nothing getting in. So there's another product. If your listeners will go to lumi.com, that's L-U-M-I.com. Uh, that is a company's product. There's other manufacturers and suppliers, but it's, it's a good company with a nice range of products. And they produce daylight simulators and SAD lamps, seasonal affective disorder lamps, which affects everybody this time of year. And the doorway simulator, quite simply, is a wake alarm. It sits on your bedside. And if I'm planning to be asleep for 11 o'clock on my five cycle routine, then part of the pre sleep routine is if finally I do get into bed, you know. I will switch on the alarm. That daylight simulator will be putting light into my room, nothing else. And then gradually, over the next 15 to 30 minutes, it'll slowly go down back into darkness and switch itself off. And the same applies in the morning, is that my wake time is 6.30. So at 6 o'clock, that light will start to come on. And it'll reach its peak by 6.30. And that means that I and my body has been brought to life by the change of those hormones by daylight being in my room. So that's another great SAD lights. Like you were saying, we were touching on before, Aaron, that it's not what you do while you're asleep, it's what you do between wake and sleep. And a great piece of technique at the moment is to use an SAD lamp in your offices or around your home because we're exposed to so much more darkness, so much more artificial light, so much more about that process that we need to, you can put SAD lamps around your home, on your office and things like that, which will really help with that process. You can get some, um, it's called F, just the letter, hyphen Lux, L-U-X. Those are diffusers that you can get down onto your devices and your computers, which simply diffuses the blue light that's coming off your device. So if you're just absolutely stuck in front of computers and devices, is that if you can remove that blue light trigger with things like that, that would really help. There is also one area, most of us, and particularly most athletes, are mouth breathers, dragging air in and throughout the mouth and using the nose very infrequently. 
when you're going into a sleep state, as muscles relax, and we remember as children, is that as you're in a lovely deep sleep state, you're just breathing very gently in and out through the nose. If your mouth breathing all day long, and you try to go into a sleep state, and you find it difficult to breathe in and out through your nose because it's not what you're doing naturally, then breathing in and out through the mouth dehydrates you, dry mouth, snorting, snoring, you name it, taking water to bed because you get dehydrated and all that sort of stuff. So it's a, it's a bad process. There's a product they can look for which is called Mute. It's M-U-T-E, mute.com, where the little, they're devices that simply are inserted into the nasal passages. Very simple, just pops in. A lot of my athletes use them for training and to encourage natural nose breathing. And they've also got a product called RhinoMed, which is a very similar device, but it's just more focused towards more endurance sports. And literally, you probably most be aware of the things used to be called nasal strips, a little like plasters you put on your nose to open up your nasal passages. Well, these products, RhinoMed and Mute, which are easily and they're even sold in boots these days, I think, is that those products can really help at certain points during the day, part of a pre-sleep, or even to use while you're actually asleep, to really increase the levels of oxygen, natural nose breathing, and that can have quite a significant effect on how well you would sleep. So there's a few bits of tech. It's not all about gadgets. Some of them are just little things that you could put in. And you start to see how you can redefine the way you approach sleep and not waste valuable time doing it, you know. Get it done, get the benefit, get on with your life. Marvellous. Nick, I just want to say thank you very much for coming on to the show and sharing your story, your experiences, your knowledge and little tips and tricks how to enhance an athlete's performance through sleep. No problem at all, it's been a pleasure. All the success to you. Likewise. Thank you for spending the time to listen to the show. If you want to learn more, check out sansit.com. That's S-A-N-C-I-T dot com. Join Sansit Group on Facebook and contact us if you have any questions. Until next time, have an awesome day and rock on.